listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 7. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of the Lord. I was 21 years old when I received the most terrifying email of my life. This is what it said. Greetings, Joey. It has come to our attention that you have become romantically involved with our daughter, As you can imagine, we take great interest in any of her boyfriends. Because we don't know you, uh, we would like you to please fill out the attached questionnaire. (laughs) Thank you in advance, Douglas D. Laird. I guess when my wife and I first started dating, her parents were concerned, maybe is the right word for it. Jenna had had a string of boyfriends, and the most recent of which had not been the best for her, and they had not met me. They had only heard stories about me. They had seen a picture or two. Uh, Back then, uh, pictures of me weren't very flattering. Uh, It was not the picture's fault. It was the hair down here and the part down the middle. (laughs) That was the problem. Anyway, her parents, having seen pictures of me, were concerned. They wanted to make sure I was the right kind of guy for her, so her dad devised a test, literally a test. Question number one, tell us about yourself, your family, your spiritual upbringing. Question number two, when have you felt closest to God? Question number three, what do you believe God has called you to do in life? Question number four, what attracts you to our daughter? Question number five, how do you deal with temptations to lust? Yeah, question six, and on it went. It was a dozen of these types of questions. Like, it was a legit test. A test, of course, specifically designed not to elicit a particular answer or not, but to reveal character. Was I qualified or not to date their daughter? I mean, they'd seen or heard enough times by guys in the past that, uh, you know, talked a good game but didn't follow through. They weren't taking any chances on me, so they sent me the test. And I took the test and passed, I think. At least they haven't told me yet if I failed. Anyway, if you were here last week when we began our study of the testing of the Son of God, the trial of Jesus in Matthew 4, you heard me say that these three temptations in the desert in Matthew 4 are a test. They're a test devised by God to reveal character to reveal Jesus' character and his qualifications for his role as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the first of a new kind of 
humanity, a human being who would finally and completely fulfill the calling of God to be a true, genuine human being as humans were designed to be. It's a test to reveal character, and it's this test, this trial, that the devil tries to co-opt to his own purposes by turning it into a temptation, trying to get Jesus to use his authority and his power as the Son of God to do things that the Son of God should never do, uh, things like splitting his worship, dividing his worship, uh, things like refusing to wait on God and his provision. Or in the case of the second of the three temptations, to put his relationship with God to the test. That's where we are as we pick up in part two of this three-part sort of mini-series on the temptations in Matthew 4, the second temptation, part two of the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. You remember at his baptism, God had, uh, had said, this is my beloved son. Now, What kind of a son is Jesus going to be? You are my beloved son, so what kind of a son? And then temptation number two, the question is, is Jesus going to be the kind of son who consistently rests in his relationship with God, or the kind of son who continually tests his relationship with God? All right, let's jump into Matthew 4 find out. Matthew 4, by the way, it's on page 961 if you grab one of those black Bibles underneath uh, the seat in front of you. I'm picking it up in verse 5. We covered the first temptation last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first four verses of the chapter other than a quick recap. Uh, Matthew is going to great pains to make sure that we understand that Jesus' temptation story isn't being told just as a moral to a story to give us a model of how you resist temptation with Scripture. There's more going on here than just that. Matthew is intentionally telling the story in a way that, that draws out and highlights the, par- uh, the parallels and the resonances with the story of Israel. Forty days and forty nights of fasting, the testing happening in the wilderness, Jesus being led by the Spirit. This all puts the the Jewish mind back towards the exile and the testing in the wilderness, the 40 years. These are intentional signals Matthew is sending our way to show us this isn't just a story about resisting temptation. It's about whether or not Jesus will be the Israel that God wanted Israel to be. Will he pass the test as the Son of God? Now, I know normally when we think of testing, Uh, especially testing somebody's qualifications, Uh, we think about qualifications in terms of skills and abilities, right? Can you do the job or not do the job? Like the time in college I applied to be a temp worker at an agency that would place you around town, right? They couldn't care less if I was a saint uh, or a jerk. They just tested me to find out if I could make a pivot table in three clicks or less, right? Because that's what they could market. Jesus' testing in the wilderness is not a test of skills and abilities. It's not a test of theological knowledge or a test of scripture memorization abilities. This is a test of character, a test of moral quality. But it's, it's a test shaped by, of course, scripture and theology, but it's fundamentally about what kind of a son will Jesus be. So pick it up. Second part of the temptation begins in verse 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. 
Now remember, it's not a, he's not questioning Jesus saying, are you really the Son of God? But what kind of a Son of God are you going to be? If you're really the Son of God, then come on, man, throw yourself off. And at first glance, this temptation seems to have to do with a, a show of power, perhaps, or a force, some sort of grand gesture. If Jesus is really the Son of God, why doesn't He just prove it? Throw Himself off the top of the temple tower. Now, the highest point of the temple was approximately 180 feet above the ground, so to throw yourself off of that is to take certain risks. Uh, of course, only if you jumped off that side. If you jump off this side, there's a ravine, and that's 450 feet down. So whichever direction, I don't know. But uh, the Son of God, the, the devil knows this, Jesus knows this, the Son of God has access to legions of angels to protect him. So what a show of force it would be for Jesus to fling himself off the temple, be caught midair by angels swooping in at the last second, and then miraculously deposited on the ground. It'd be like a Superman moment. So the devil, or the tempter, or the adversary, the accuser, whatever, he goes by all sorts of names in this passage, whatever we want to call him, he even quotes Scripture to back up this temptation he's trying to entice Jesus towards. Look at verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, because, you know, it's written, the Bible says, he will command his angels concerning you, and... On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, both quotes come from Psalm 91. Uh, Psalm 91, which in itself is kind of a hard uh, psalm to wrap our minds around. Uh, Two years ago, shortly after COVID started, I got into the habit of reading through the Psalms every month. And every month, reading through the Psalms, I keep bumping on Psalm 91. It contains phrases like, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You will not fear the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. You can see why it gets my attention. (laughs) I've been reading it monthly during COVID. It sounds great, but it doesn't sound true. So it's giving me pause. See, the Psalms are uh, tricky to interpret. They're poetry. They use a lot of imagery. They use a lot of hyperbole. I mean, our songs do the same thing. Grab uh, the hymnal underneath the seat in front of you and open it to just about any song, and you'll find in there words and images that kind of speak better than what we are. Psalms and, and songs in general deal, they deal more in patterns than they do in promises. Psalm 91 is no exception. When we read, you know, he will command his angels concerning you on their hands, they will bear you up. That's a pattern, not necessarily a promise. That Psalm says, those who dwell in the shadow of the Most High, it goes on to say, well, you can expect that in the normal course of events, God is going to care for his own in a providential way. It's the message of Psalm 91, but Psalm 91 is one of 150 psalms. You've got to sing the whole songbook. 
Because if you sing Psalm 91, but you don't sing psalms like Psalm 34, then you get a lopsided view of what the psalms are teaching us. Psalm 34 says something like, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So which is it? If you trust in the Lord, He won't even let you stub your toe, or if you're righteous, you'll be afflicted? Well, it's both. And you have to sing both in order to get the full picture. Even Psalm 91, if we sing the entirety of Psalm 91, as Jesus would have on a regular basis growing up, you end up singing out loud God's lines as well. When God says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Not I will save him from trouble. I'll be with him in it. So back to Matthew 4. Let's look at what the accuser says again. See if maybe we can get a better handle on what he's actually trying to tempt Jesus to do. Again, verse 5, the devil took him, took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the location here is actually significant because in the Jewish mindset, the Jewish way of thinking about the world, the way you get closer to God is you either go up So the higher you are, the closer you are to God, up on the mountain, right? The higher you are, the closer you are to God, or you go in. The closer you are to the temple, and the closer you are to the center of the temple, the closer you are to God, because that's where God resides. That's where heaven and earth comes together. So if you want to get close to God, you go in and you go up. Now, Jesus wasn't a Levite. He would never have had access to the Holy of Holies in the physical temple. So the the closest possible place Jesus could get to God physically, in the way that the Jewish people thought about the world and heaven and how everything related together, was to go in and up. So he's at the pinnacle of the temple, in the very presence of God. And that's where the devil says... Throw yourself off. You're here in God's presence. Why don't you test it? So you can hear what he's really saying. He's saying, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are as close to God as anyone is ever going to get. You have the closest relationship with God possible. So, of course, God loves you, right? You're his son. But don't you ever wonder? Don't you ever wonder if maybe he doesn't love you as much as he says he loves you or as much as you think he loves you? Do you ever wonder if maybe, if push really comes to shove, do you wonder if maybe he would be there for you? You ever wonder if maybe he's not using you, trying to get something out of you? His tone shifts a little bit. He says, you know, I, I know. I, I've got, I know a way you can prove to everyone and to yourself that God really loves you. Just put him to the test. There's nothing wrong with a test. You should be able to test him. Put him to the test. Test his love. If you really want to know if God loves you, then find out. Just throw yourself off. You know God's going to catch you. 
You've sung the songs about it. He's promised to. When it comes to you, he'll send his angels to you. They'll catch you up. You won't even stub a toe. So if you really want to know Jesus, if God is on your side, if he's got your back, if he really loves you, if you really want to know, if you really want to know what kind of relationship you have, well, the only way to find out is to test it. So jump off. Let God show you how much he loves you. You see what the temptation is really about? It's not about some grand gesture to prove to the watching crowds that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Not about a show of force. It's about being in the very presence of God and not being able to rest in God's presence until you have tested God's presence. I mean, that's a temptation that all of us are familiar with. We, we tend to think that, that the devil, because of, you know, caricatures and whatever, we think the voice of the devil or the accuser in our lives is going to be super obvious. Like, it's going to be some guy on a street corner who's just waiting for you to walk by. So it can be like, supply chain, am I right? Yeah, life's hard. Here's a pistol and there's a 7-Eleven. Like, why don't you go get what you deserve? And if it were that obvious, it'd be easy. But it is never that obvious. The voice of the devil sounds a whole lot more like, you know that thing you did last night? That thing you promised yourself you would never do again? You're worthless. What kind of a Christian are you if you can't even keep yourself from doing something so stupid you know you shouldn't do? You know the Bible says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what makes you think you deserve to get in? And you better work harder. You better try harder. Stop putting up with failure as an option. You got to do better if you want to know that God really loves you. Of course, that's only one side of it. Some of us may hear almost the exact opposite voice sounding something more like, you know, that thing you did last night, that thing you feel guilty about? Stop beating yourself up about it. Come on, it wasn't that big of a deal. You don't have to be ashamed. God loves you just the way you are, and he wants you to be true to who you are. So don't worry about the stuff you're doing wrong. Jesus died for all that, right? You believe it. Jesus died for all that. You know the Bible says where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. You're just getting extra grace. So stop. Stop worrying about trying to be righteous and just get on with your life. See, both the person who thinks that the Bible teaches that they need to be good enough for God to let them into heaven, and the person who thinks that because Jesus' death covers everything, they don't have to pay any sort of attention at all to growing in righteousness, both are listening to the voice of the accuser, the devil, the Satan, even when he's quoting Scripture even when he's backing up the Bible to make the Bible say things it never says. Because the adversary, the slanderer, will use every tool at his disposal, even Scripture, to tempt us to rather than rest in our relationship with God and the forgiveness we've been granted in Jesus, instead of resting in that relationship, we have to test that relationship. He'll get us to believe we can't rest until after a test. 
Has that hit you? I mean, has that happened in your life where you've tested God instead of rested in God? Well, let's, let's look at how Jesus responds to the temptation. How does he respond to this temptation to test his relationship with God? Now, if you've read this passage before or you're familiar with this story, you know every one of these temptations, Jesus responds with Scripture. He, he responds by quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. Look at verse 7. So Jesus said to him, the devil, again, it is written, and that word again is great, again or also. Uh, it could either be Jesus saying like, okay, again, I quoted scripture once, I'm going to quote scripture again, it is also written, or he may just be saying, okay, Psalm 91 says that, but it is also written that, and he's saying, no, you don't get to just rip verses out of context to make them say whatever you want. It is also written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put God to the test. So I think Jesus' response shows that he clearly understands what he's being tempted to do. He's being enticed, trying to be, the devil's trying to draw him into testing his relationship with God. Not testing whether or not God will catch him, but testing whether or not God loves him enough to catch him, testing the relationship. So in response, he quickly goes to the same sermon he quoted in responding to the first temptation, Moses' great sermon from the early chapters in Deuteronomy. In that sermon, uh, Moses is preparing the people of Israel. They've wandered in the desert for 40 years, and now at the end of this, he's saying, okay, we're about to go into the promised land. There's some things you need to remember. Let me tell you the story again. So you remember what we've learned these last 40 years before we go into this promised land. He's giving them sort of a last charge before they go in. So Deuteronomy 6 recounts the central obligations of a people who have been rescued from slavery by God. He gives them eight. Recognize God alone. Love Him with everything you are and everything you have. Arrange your life so you are regularly, regularly reminded of God's commands. Don't forget God once you experience blessing and think you don't need him anymore. Don't go running off after other gods. Don't put God to the test like you did that time you said, you know, if God really loved us, he wouldn't let us suffer like we are. Live according to God's design for your flourishing. Teach these things to your children. Did you catch the one in the middle about testing? See, in Moses' sermon, he reminds the people not to test God. He says that you shall not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. He's referring back to a story from Exodus 17. Not to, don't test God like you did at the place that they started calling Massa because it's the place where they tested God, and Massa means the place of testing. Don't test God like you did at that place we renamed the place of testing because that's where you tested God. If you remember the story, or I guess even if you don't remember the story, I'll tell you, uh, the people of God, in their wandering, they were running short of water, which we can all agree is important and necessary, vital ingredient to life, so they began to complain. But it wasn't the kind of complaining that sounded like, hey, God has brought us this far, I'm sure he has a plan, he'll provide. It was the kind of complaining that sounded more like, if God really loved us, why in the world would he lead us into suffering like this? If God really loved us, he would have prevented this suffering. He would not have let this happen to us. So Moses reminds them in his sermon, when you go into the promised land, don't test God like you did at the place of testing. And in Matthew 4, when the devil tells Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, 
to test God, to find out if God really loves him or not, Jesus quotes this command from that sermon talking about that story. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Psalm 91, which the devil quoted, certainly addresses someone who seeks shelter and refuge in the Lord. That psalm assures us that God protects us. In the aggregate, as a pattern, God protects those who come to him for shelter. But as Jesus points out in his reply, that protection does not apply when the intent is to put God to the test through some foolish or rash or pointless act. I mean, even reading the psalm as optimistically as you could, there's no justification in it for provoking God by putting yourself in harm's way, you know, demanding that God come and rescue you. One commentary writing on it says these verses, it's about protection against accidental stumbling, not intervention to prevent suicide. So what's really at stake in this temptation? Is it really so bad for Jesus to test God and find out if he really loves him? Yes, obviously the answer is yes, because faith and love means resting in your relationship with God, not testing your relationship with God. The relationship of a son to a father is not a relationship of testing, it's a relationship of resting. Because testing God, testing God's faithfulness implies there's some doubt there. You have a reason to be worried And your doubt can only be alleviated by some sign, some signal, some proof that you define and hold God accountable to in order to prove that he really loves you. See, what the devil, what the slanderer is trying to entice Jesus to do is to commit himself to an action that would undermine his intimate relationship and connection with the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Father. The the devil is striking at the core of their relationship. If Jesus takes the accuser's bait, he's subverting his mission as God's Son by refusing to trust in his Father's love and goodness. Now, as an aside, you may be thinking, okay, so God can test Jesus. Why is it wrong for Jesus to test God. Remember, God isn't testing Jesus' relationship with him. He's testing his qualifications, his character for the vocation. You could think of it like a a father and a son, like any one of us, right? Uh, A father gives his son a job to do, a chore to do, something that, that he knows is right at the limit of his son's abilities, and the only way his son is going to be able to accomplish the task that's given to him is if he continues to work hard at it and doesn't give up. Now, the father's not wrong to test his son in that way, to reveal to himself and to his son as well, like, do you have the character to stick with something difficult, even if it doesn't come easy? But for the son to turn the tables and go back to the father and sort of uh, give up early or whatever to test the father's patience is not okay. Or at least I remember when I was growing up, anytime my dad said, you're testing my patience, the correct response was not, and do you have any? (laughs) Right, it doesn't work that direction. 
see, Jesus is, is resisting a temptation to wonder about his relationship with God and then put it to the test. He's, he's resisting a temptation that we all give into all the time. We know it's wrong to test God by demanding that he show us some sign, rescue us exactly the way we want, provide for us specifically in the ways that we desire. Sometimes in the scripture, in you know, the Old Testament especially, we read about tests like that, and God is gracious and condescending to meet us in our sinfulness. But in Matthew 4, Jesus knows God is omniscient. God knows when it is better to let us go through something than to rescue us from something. And Jesus knows you can't rest in a relationship if you're also testing that relationship. You can't rest in a relationship when you're waiting to find out if the other person in it passed. Testing is only needed once a relationship is broken or you have a reason to believe that the other person in the relationship isn't living up to their end of it, then it's appropriate. That is why it is wrong for Jesus to test God's relationship with him, to test God's love for him. It implies there's a reason to believe that the relationship is broken or that God isn't holding up his end of it. It implies that God is not as good as he says he is, that Jesus can't trust him as he thought that he could. You can't rest in a relationship if you're testing it. And if you're testing it, you can never rest in it. Now, I know very few of us are ever going to be transported by the devil to a tower and invited to jump off to find out if God loves us or not. Our tests, our temptations are a little smaller scale. So while we won't face these exact circumstances, I do think that this story and and this account of Jesus overcoming temptation in the wilderness does at least highlight kind of a central core question for us. Maybe you could ask yourself this, what am I more prone to do? To rest in my relationship with God or to test my relationship with God? Let me give you some examples of what this might look like, right? Okay, testing first. Testing could look like this in, in your prayers. Testing may look like, God, if the other kids at school aren't nice to me, then... Or God, if I don't get into the college I want to. Or God, if you don't provide the job for me that I need. Or God, if you don't make this suffering stop... God, if you don't save my marriage, or you don't save my kids, or you don't save my retirement account, God, if I have to go through one more difficulty, God, if you don't answer this prayer, or God, if you don't catch me when I jump, God, I will only believe you are good. I will only believe you are trustworthy and reliable and gracious and kind. I will only believe that you really love me if... Fill in the blank. Resting, on the other hand, looks more like this. 
God, even if the other kids at school aren't nice to me, even if I don't get into the college I want to get into, God, even if you don't provide the job I think I need, God, even if you don't make this suffering stop, God, even if you don't save my marriage or save my kids or save my retirement account, God, even if the rest of my life is suffering, even if you don't answer this prayer, God, even if you don't catch me when I jump, God, I believe that you are good. I believe that you are trustworthy and you are reliable and you are gracious and you are kind. I know you love me because I can see your love for me on the cross. See, the, the temptation here in Matthew 4 is not about violating some command or some arbitrary rule. It's not an exegetical debate about whose Bible verses can beat up the other person's Bible verses, and which one do you have to listen to? Which one's the real rule? This is a temptation to take a deliberate step away from resting in your relationship with God. It's about trading resting in the relationship for testing the relationship because you think you cannot rest in it until you've tested it. But testing your relationship with God never leads to rest. You just keep coming up with bigger and bigger tests. God, if you love me, you will, A, B, C. Thank you for that. God, if you really love me, you will, D, E, F, and G. Thank you for that. God, if you really, really love me, you'll X, Y, Z. So we have to stop testing our relationship with God, holding on to the little proofs that God loves us. Because we've already received the greatest proof we're ever going to get. On the cross, Jesus endured all the testing that we deserve so that we would never need to be tested for our love. See, the devil tries to tempt Jesus to throw himself off the temple so God could prove his love for him and everyone watching by rescuing him. Then everyone, including Jesus, would know that he's really the Son of God when they see God send angels to rescue him. But when he was hanging on the cross, when God loved him and us so much that he didn't rescue his own son... It was the lack of rescue and the lack of angels that made the centurion stand up and say, in awe, surely this was the Son of God. And that's how we know that God loves us. If you are stuck in a loop of testing God, prove that you love me, prove that you love me, prove that you love me, you've got to even out your prayers. It's no longer God if, but God, even if you don't, you have shown me on the cross that you love me, and I'm going to rest in that and rest in God. Let's pray. 
Father, we admit it is so difficult to rest in you. We sing and we pray and we proclaim that we are forgiven because of our faith in Jesus. To say, I am forgiven is easy to be at peace. So difficult and takes a lifetime. Father, refocus our gaze on your Son who endured the testing in the wilderness and endured the temptation to sin so that his perfection in our place would overcome our wretchedness. And even though we are as... We are more wretched than we will ever know. We are more deeply loved than we can ever understand. Help us to rest in that. We pray this in the name of your Son, our rest.